Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And we're discussing chapters one through four of The Golden Compass, The Decanter of Tukay, The Idea of North, Lyris Jordan, and The Alethiometer. And so since we're reading the book and there are two names for the book, we just wanted to talk about that for a second here up front. Uh, So if you are in North America, then this is the Golden Compass. Uh, Everyone else has the Northern Lights. And I guess this was originally the series itself was originally supposed to be the Golden Compasses. Is that right, Caitlin? Yes. Uh, Which uh, comes from... Uh, the Milton poem, Paradise Lost, the name Golden Compasses. And then the series is called His Dark Materials, which is, of course, also from Milton's poem. And I know that we've talked about this before off mic, but I think I'm the only one who's actually read that poem out of the three of us, right? I believe I've read some excerpts, but not the whole thing. Nope. (laughs) It's pretty rad if people like... Uh, dark poetry. It gets boring once the humans come in, which is my critique of it. Uh, one of the greatest English poems ever. Down with humans. Ugh. says. Are we going to have to podcast um, about it? No, 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 absolutely <laughs> okay, not. I wouldn't make you read. I wouldn't make you read that poem. Okay. So the golden compasses line is basically like talking about the creation of the universe and all this stuff. And I just wanted to read the part of that like real quick. So you can imagine that like God is like out there in this wild chaos and he's like creating the universe and um, the way that he does it for chaos heard his voice, him and all his train followed in bright possession to behold creation and the wonders of his might then stayed the fervid wheels. And in his hands, he took the golden compasses prepared in God's eternal store to circumscribe this universe and all created things. And so you like have there the golden compasses, right? But his dark materials is what it's called, uh, which I think is the better name for this series. And that was Pullman's choice, but the English publisher or not the English publishers, the American publishers liked the golden compass so much. They wanted it uh, for the first book, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or so the internet tells me. <laughs> they when Pullman told them that the series was the Golden Compasses, they like misunderstood and thought it was the name of the first book. And then when he changed his mind, it was like actually it's going to be his Dark Materials. They were like, 
oh, but can we keep the golden compass? And he was just kind of like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I actually like the golden compass as a name. Once you throw in there, like the amber spyglass and the subtle knife, like it feels like those names are all connected to each other in a way that like the Northern Lights just doesn't fit in with those other two. I think. I mean, it's technically um, an adjective and a noun, but not quite in the same way. Uh, it's more of like yeah, a it's compound. like a place. Thing. Yep. Well, it's a place instead of a thing, I guess, mm. or like a, a magical artifact. Well, Northern Lights is just a natural phenomena. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like the other two are not. They're they're things. Yeah. And yeah, like exactly. you could think of the alethiometer as the golden compass. So it like fits mm-hmm. better. I just like Northern Lights because I bought my copy of the book in England. So it's called Northern Lights. <laughs> I could see that. I'm just glad that the reason the titles are different isn't because they thought American audiences would be too dumb because that's what it usually is. Oh, yeah. Like I've Harry had Potter, multiple right? arguments with American friends about the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> it is, it is stupid. Uh, shall we move on to summaries? Yes, we okay. shall. Uh, well, actually, just before we start our book discussion, let's read the the epi- epigraph, epitaph. Which one of those is on a tomb? Epitaph is epigraph. on a tomb. Epigraph is on a. Uh, let's read the epigraph that he did go with for the name that the series did stick with. I can give it a go if if we want to hear me read some Milton. Go for it. With some fun with some fun punctuation. Into this wild abyss, the womb of nature and perhaps her grave of neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire, but all these in their pregnant causes mix confusedly, and which thus must ever fight unless the almighty maker them ordain his dark materials to create more worlds. Into this wild abyss, the wary fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while pondering his voyage which does give us quite a different sort of intro than the uh, golden compasses yeah yeah it's much less about creation and much more ominous sounding i think totally yeah it also like emphasizes like the there's a big theme in that poem of like the compass is like this kind of rational kind of it's like mathematical and Mm -hmm. um you know, like as opposed to the chaos, which is like, you know, kind of boundless and irrational. And that's associated with Satan. The golden compass is associated with God. And I think that overall, like this series is more sympathetic to the Satan position in Milton's work because he's like more individualistic. He's um, more curious and passionate. And like, uh, so it's like, it's a much better quote for him to go with, but there's, I think there's also like in this book, especially, and in the series, there's a big thing of like rationality versus irrationality, which is the same theme as Milton, but it's not associated with like the same polemic of like goodness equals rationality, evil equals irrationality. Exactly. Anyway, something that I think is important. Uh, for the series i guess okay so now i'm basing what i'm going to say on like vague memories from high school english lit but uh paradise lost is also like satan is the protagonist in that no i would not agree with that reading i'm not saying that he's a good guy no he's not saying he's uh, like He's important in the first part of it and then becomes like less important as it. Oh, maybe goes that's on. the only bit that we read in, in English lit then. 
Yeah. And so we just talked about it from that point of view. God is definitely know. the protagonist. He's like, the whole thing is like, God's in control of everything. And that's awesome, is basically the idea of that poem. Okay, well, then we can stop talking. Or I can cut that out. <laughs> Me okay. being a fool. No, no, no. It's, I think a lot of people think that, uh, to be honest with you, because like the romantics come back to it and that's the only part they care about. And honestly, it's like the best part. Okay. But yeah. Well, the, I was just saying that then I think it's important that he decided to include a line from Satan's perspective mm-hmm. and not from God's perspective. Mm, yes. And to emphasize the satanic dark materials instead of the godly, like rational mathematical compasses. I'll say I read the dark materials as belonging to God. I mean, God's in charge of everything, but it's like, this is neither fire nor the sea, nor it's like nothing. It's like chaos. Uh, That's like what the universe is made of, except for heaven and hell. And it's like, God can turn it into anything, but Mm -hmm. that's where Satan has his home. He makes castle pandemonium floating in the chaos and like, rides the chaos between hell and earth and right gotcha um it also includes a line about making more worlds yeah which also important also important all right now let's get into our discussion of the chapters okay so we're gonna do just like some brief chapter summaries at the beginning of each episode because we assume that probably not all of the listeners are going to have read the book super recently. In chapter one, we meet Lyra Balakwa, a young girl living at Jordan College in Oxford, and her demon Pantalaimon as they're sneaking into the scholar's retiring room. While there, they're surprised by an early visit from the master of the college and the butler, who discussed the imminent arrival of Lyra's uncle, Lord Azrael. The butler leaves, and Lyra witnesses the master put poison in the wine left out for Lord Azrael. The master leaves, and Lyra decides to hide in the wardrobe to warn her uncle about the poison. Once he arrives, and she does so, he tells her to hide again and to spy on the master for him. And then in chapter two, the master and other scholars come in, and Lord Azrael begins a slideshow and Lyra, and therefore the reader, are introduced to some holy shit plot moments. Uh, but not before they fry up some poppy and get high. Because that's what you do. <laughs> no, Caitlin, it clarifies the mind and makes for better conversation. Yeah. I mean... We learned that Lord. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, to be fair, I know a lot of academics who smoke pot, but... I feel like pop and opium are kind of on two different well, levels. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and are they part of a state-sponsored church massive dystopian organization? Because <laughs> I was like, huh, that's weird. The chaplain is like, yeah, cut up some poppy, let's go. Well, we can talk more about that later, but that was like one of the interesting clues for uh, like setting and placing uh, the book in time that I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah. This chapter is full of those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, so we learn that Lord Azrael and also someone named Grumman have been researching capital D dust in the Arctic North. Azrael shows a picture of an adult man attracting dust to him that's like coming down from the sky um, and a child beside him that is not attracting dust. Someone asks if this child is severed. Uh, Azrael says that he isn't. 
But we learn nothing more about that, and everybody in the room kind of wishes it hasn't been brought up, hadn't been brought up. Throughout their talks of the North, Panzerbjörna are also mentioned, and that somebody named Jofer Ragnarsson is the king of the bears. Asriel shows a picture of another world visible through the northern lights, and as they are all coming around to voting on whether or not to give him some money to go and research all this some more, he shows them the severed head of Grumman, who used to be a scholar at the college, and he found that he was dead somewhere in the north. This seems... Under the impression that Grumman has been murdered by some people, this convinces everyone to give Asriel the money and send him north. Lyra falls asleep in the wardrobe she's hiding in while everyone discusses giving Asriel some money. And then after they all have left, she reports what she saw to him and goes back to her room. After that, we get a little aside that is not told from Lyra's perspective with the master of the college and the librarian discussing why it puts the college in a bad place politically to support Azrael. The master mentions something called the alethiometer and that Lyra is going to get involved in all these politics somehow. And I believe this is also where he mentions that she will be, uh, that she will betray someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this where we find out she'll be an expert in dust or is that later? Uh, I believe that is later. Never. It might be here. Well, uh, no, I think it's no, in chapter three. It's later, yeah. And that chapter has chapter two there, or I guess chapter one has the first Narnia illusion in it. Yes, uh, right. She hides in the she's wardrobe. in a wardrobe. Mm. Yeah, and it's one of the first things she does. She hides in a wardrobe in order to overhear all these men talking about important political things and important theological things. And instead of finding a different world. In a wardrobe, she discovers more about her own world and is right brought into this adventure in a different way. Yeah, I really love how it's all inverted. It's like she went into a world of science instead of a world of like magic. Mm-hmm. It's like her world is magic. And then it's like, oh, here's this scientific exposition. It's cool. In chapter three, we learn about Lyra and her friend Roger and their lives in and around Jordan College. We learn that Lyra lives a sort of double life as a nobly born child being raised in a college where scholars try to teach her things and one of a mostly wild street urchin who takes charge and is imaginative and a leader. Then we hear about children disappearing and we get a story told about Tony Makarios and his demon ratter as they're taken away by an elegant lady and her golden monkey demon. We hear several versions of the legend of the child-stealing gobblers before Egyptian boy named Billy and Lyra's friend Roger go missing. Just as Lyra has resolved herself that she's going to go rescue Roger, she's forced to go to dinner with the master and some visiting scholars, where she meets a beautiful woman named Mrs. Coulter, who has a golden monkey demon. Ooh. And then, in another third-person <laughs> aside, we find out that Lyra will eventually become the world's leading expert in dust. And then in chapter four, Mrs. Coulter immediately intrigues Lyra, uh, tells her about the North and everything that she's done and the exploration she's been on. And Lyra is completely transfixed by her. The Master of Jordan takes Lyra aside after the meal to tell her that she will no longer be living at Jordan College, but will be going away with Mrs. Coulter. Uh, Lyra seems very excited about this. The next morning before Lyra leaves, the master has her come visit him in secret, where he gives her an instrument called an alethiometer. He quickly says that he wishes he could have prevented her going off with Mrs. Coulter, but he can't, and tells her that the instrument um, that he's just given her tells the truth, and it was given to the college by Azrael some years ago, and that she must keep it secret from Mrs. Coulter. 
Lyra sets off to London and only then remembers that Roger is missing, but it once again leaves her mind quickly as she is entranced by all things London and Coulter. Mrs. Coulter takes Lyra all around London, showing her amazing sights and takes her shopping and just introducing her to this whole different world she never knew. At the end of the day, Lyra and Pan take a look at the alethiometer again and wonder why the master gave it to them, and Pan reminds Lyra that she is to keep it secret from Mrs. Coulter. And that is the first part of the book. We also get another Narnia reference there with um, her tempting the little Egyptian boy, Billy, with uh, chocolate, uh, the way that no, the that's witch... Tony. Oh, the Tony. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Well, it's the you know basically the same idea as what happens in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the evil queen or whatever you want to call Ice her, bitch. I guess the witch, yeah, uh, <laughs> offers candy to a child who's like, sounds great, stranger, and then uh, gets, <laughs> I, I almost said gets norted, uh, which is a totally <laughs> different mythology. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's clearly a Narnia reference. Yeah, and thus C.S. Lewis convinced dozens of American children that Turkish Delight was actually good until we tried it and realized it wasn't. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan either of the uh, Turkish Delight. Hot chocolate, way better. Or whatever she's offering. Yeah. It's hot chocolate, right? Yeah. yeah so actually, chocolate. yeah, it's called um, Chocolatel, which is... Uh, yeah. Because it's originally from uh, the Nuadal word, which is the Nuadal's the language uh, that the Aztec people spoke before they were forced to learn Spanish instead. Interesting. So I wonder if that's the case in this world. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're kind of getting ahead of where things are in the dock, but it's uh, it's clearly one of those choices where it's like things are just slightly off, right? Like. It, right. If it's not necessarily that like the Aztecs weren't forced to learn Spanish in this world, but it, maybe the Spanish were just like a little bit better at listening, and so when they brought chocolate <laughs> back to the old world, people like uh, were able to pronounce it correctly. It's an interesting take that he has to the world building, because it's not like he starts off and says, you know, this is a different world where parts of people's souls exist outside of them and you know it's kind of like ours but slightly different and some things are sometimes called blah 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 blah. so much as he just drops in people saying things or thinking things and it all seems very organic yeah i completely agree i really love the world building in this series it's fantastic yeah. like not to make a pun of it but uh <laughs> it's the strongest thing i think in the book next to lyra herself as a character agreed I love Lyra. Yeah. All right. Favorite parts in these first couple chapters? We put me at the top, so I guess I'll go first, even though I just introed the section, and it's weird. But anyways, <laughs> my favorite part is just the opening line. Uh, I think Philip Pullman, as we've seen in other books of his also, is just really good at like opening bits and, and um, having you immediately sucked into the story. So the opening line here is Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side, out of sight of the kitchen. And it immediately grabs you because, like, what the heck is a demon? What is this hall that they're in? Why is it? Why is she sneaking about? Yeah. And, yeah, and then she goes and, like, she rings that glass. Yeah. And it's just immediately, and Pan is immediately like, what are you doing? Let's go. We're sneaking in here. We're not doing this. And it's just so so much character within, like, one small paragraph. That's a good point. There's a lot of tension there. Mm -hmm. 
that's really something that a kid can plug into too, right? Like she's up to something. And I think any child can like immediately sympathize with that energy and kind of jump into her mind right away. And it's yeah. a really good point. And I guess we don't quite know what demons are yet, mm-hmm. but they are like a part of the person's soul, but yeah. just that exists outside and you can talk to them. And I love any time that the person and their demon are kind of at odds with each other because it just makes so much sense to me that if you had a piece of yourself outside of yourself, you would be constantly arguing with it, you know, because <laughs> you'd have those in your head conversations, but you could have them outside. You'd be like, well, this will be a good idea. And then you're like, maybe it's not such a good idea. And I don't know. That just makes complete sense to me. That was actually going to be one of my questions or like things to to look at going forward. There's like this very clear dynamic between Lyra and Pan where like Lyra's more reckless and Pan is much more conservative and like Mm -hmm. um, wants to be like safe and careful. Um, And I'm just I'm interested in seeing like what other kinds of dynamics like is our demons and their humans always set up as these kind of like opposing forces or... Or, like, what other pictures of that human-demon relationship do we get to see? Well, I mean, in these chapters alone, we do get to see uh, Azrael and Stelmaria talk a little bit. And that one, it does feel a little bit different. And I like the... Because they're both... What is it? Like, she kind of gives them some advice. Mm-hmm. Like, she talks about how tired they are and that they should get some sleep. And he's just like, yes, I know, and we should do this, and we should do this. But it's not going to happen. And they don't argue... They just sort of do what they have to do. And it's interesting that juxtaposition of like an adult and his demon and a child and her demon. Yeah. Yeah. My impression Mm. is that at least so far, the adults and their demons are like much more on the same page. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, you know, if that has something to do with like how how you and your demon mature as you reach adulthood. I have a lot of thoughts about all this, but I have it in our later section about religion. Alrighty, let's move on to your favorite bit then. <laughs> oh, uh, I really love Lyra like as a storyteller um, in these chapters, especially when they're talking about the gobblers or when she's retelling stories about Lord Asriel and just how like a living person she just lifts off the page. You know, like mm-hmm. it's she's very easy to believe in. And I was a kid like this, like we were moving constantly and like my home life was like, really traumatic and so like i recognize lyra immediately as Mm -hmm. someone who's like me and like i would be on the playground and talking about like what my last school experience was like but i'm not telling the like just the facts ma'am version i'm telling the legend of like how i had to like you know fight off 50 dogs by myself (laughs) And I lost my gun in that battle. And that's why I don't have my gun anymore. But I'm totally an undercover cop, you guys, and stuff like that. Because she, like, has this, like, you know, bigger than real life kind of view of the world, this kind of epic view of the world that kind of compensates for all this loneliness that she seems to feel. And I just love her as a character and a storyteller. I wonder if there's something about the fact that she's, like, given this truth perceiving instrument and she starts out as like such a liar (laughs) and like Mm, her name even lyra has like it sounds a little bit in that direction yeah uh i also in the vein of her telling lies like how it's set up as 
Like, he doesn't come out and say, Lyra's good at lying. You know, he, he shows her telling Azrael the story about them catching a rook and healing it and setting it free. And then later on, she tells Mrs. Coulter that they caught a rook and they roasted it. And mm-hmm. it's like, which one did you do? And you genuinely just don't even know which one happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. Or if yeah. either of them happened, who even knows? Maybe there was no rook. <laughs> right. Yeah, if you asked Roger, you'd probably get a very different story. Yeah. She's just this wild kid out there. Yeah, it's so good. Like, Lyra is fabulous. And so that was, like, easily, like, the the best thing going on here, I thought. Anya? So my favorite part was um, how Pullman has set up the world where uh, both we and Lyra don't really know who to trust. I mean, it's pretty clear, at least to the reader, that Mrs. Coulter's fucking evil. Um, but I think it's pretty <laughs> ambiguous between Lord Asriel and the master, like who has better motivations and who Lyra would be better off trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also really like the world building um, that we've kind of talked about where he's just like sprinkled in all of these uh, bits that are like very intriguing and don't make a lot of sense. And I want to make sure that we revisit the chapter one scene at the end of the book um, and kind of like make sure, see how we can reinterpret the scene uh, with the bigger picture. With, sorry, the scene where the master was going to poison Asriel? Uh, or maybe chapter two, Lord Asriel's presentation about everything oh, okay. that happened up north. Yeah, sorry, chapter two. I mean, a lot of that is kind of explained in the conversation between the master and the librarian where they're talking about how, you know, the other world theories have been kind of made heresy by the very powerful church. And now Azrael has convinced Jordan College to fund his expedition to research this other world theory. So now Jordan College is kind of in this in-between political place where if they upset the church, bad things could happen to them, but they couldn't really say no to Azrael and all these things. And it's just a very political bit. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I, as I was reading it, I kind of felt like there was a lot of subtlety there that I wasn't getting and that I thought okay. would make more sense if I revisited it later. All right, yeah. I mean, it does make sense to actually... No, there's another bit in there that we should actually revisit later on. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and can we talk about our least favorite parts too? Because I kind of hate how Pullman is constantly calling everyone dim-witted and stupid. And I feel like... It's not intentional, uh, like, as the third-person narrator, I think that's, like, his disdain for people seeping through. But maybe that's just <laughs> my take. <laughs> I always thought that, because usually when he's calling people that, it's when he's with Lyra, and he's explaining Lyra's, you know, view of the world. But a lot of it is, or at least some of them are, like, with in scenes where she's not there, and, like, she would have no way of being oh, there. Okay. All the ones I think of are mostly her talking about the servants at her college are obviously not as smart and wonderful as the scholars and like the scholars from other colleges and the town people are obviously dumber than everybody at her college. And it's just obvious this like weird skewed view of the world that she's got being raised somewhere that most people just go for education and even right. then you yeah. develop like a loyalty. Oh yeah. So her being raised there has created this like uber (laughs) uber loyalty no that totally makes sense i'm talking more about the ones where uh he's talking about like the some of the kids who get kidnapped i 
may have been Tony. Um, okay. And and I feel like Tony's mom too. Like it just it feels like a bit of classism kind of seeping in, like disdain towards the stupid poor people. Yeah, his mom is painted as like she's very drunk. She can't really remember who the father was. She's very careless with him and she, you know, is not aware of where he is or like what his life is like. And so I could see that reading that is like talking down to her as like a person. I could see that. Yeah. I can see it too, but I in the case of Tony, I don't I honestly I don't know. It might be Pullman's own classism. I I, I have no idea how he feels about poor people honestly but i got i don't know like he talks about how she doesn't remember who tony's father was but he never really like there's no judgment about it Mm -hmm. and he talks about how she's a drunk and and they're poor but then he also has that heartbreaking line afterwards when like she never sees tony again and how she blamed herself and would just cry herself to sleep or whatever it was Mm -hmm. yeah i think there too you're supposed to like notice that the gobblers are not targeting like rich kids. Like this is they're being preyed on uh, poorer people are. And so I think you are supposed to be sympathetic, but maybe that is why it's hitting. I don't want to put words in your mouth on you, but like why it's hitting her is like dissonance because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, it feels like they're being talked down about. And then on the other hand, we're being invited to be sympathetic, you know, to their situation. Yeah. I think you articulated that better than I was able to, but that's kind of what I was feeling. I feel a little bit uncomfortable in the same ways as what you're saying sometimes uh, with his use of language. And I like, I think like Caitlin said, a lot of it is to show like this kind of internalized bias that Lyra has about, you know, her view of the world is like the Jordan college view. And she's not aware of that in the same way that like kids always are. They like parrot their parents and yeah, like fat people are lazy. Right, mom? Because that's like what they have heard their whole life. And, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of way. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's fairly obvious when he's doing it on purpose. And then I think there yeah. are some places where it's like his own biases slipping in. The one that gets me is um, how he goes, how he makes specific Like, this comes up more than once in this book, not to get ahead of ourselves, but that servants always have dogs for demons. Yeah. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I think that's quite the generalization, actually. And Does that mean that... Kind of shitty. And does that mean that, like, everyone has their profession chosen by puberty? Like, can you... Are you just, like, not Uh not allowed to be a servant if your demon's not a dog? We don't don't know that yet. What if... We don't know that yet. You're getting ahead (laughs) of yourself. That's a spoiler. Ah! Okay. Um, no, it's fine. Leave, I'll, I'll leave that in. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> the, the, like, one spoiler that I'm actually capable of making. Um, yeah. <laughs> great. Because uh, I don't remember anything else about how this book ends. Uh, that's not true. I remember a little bit. Um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Just that, like, it doesn't really make sense, right? Like, what if you're noble-born and you end up with a demon that settles as a dog? You know? Yeah, I, I'm sure it must happen. Like, just because you're a nobly born person doesn't mean you're not the type of person who is kind of, you know, that you value clear instructions and order and like the pack, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that seems, that seems perfectly reasonable. You're not born to your person or like your station in life is not your personality. Yeah. So I think stuff like that is kind of shitty. 
Sounds like a lot of heresy to me. I think both of you better watch it. I'm very much looking forward to our wrap-up episode where we will get to assign each other our demon identities. Yeah, so I actually, I think we talked about it in our scrapped episode, so I'll just say, um, years ago, people asked, if I'm remembering this correctly, because this was like pre-Twitter and stuff, um, people asked Philip Pullman how you decide what your demon is, and he was just like, I, I don't know, ask your friends. <laughs> So that's going to be our method. Yeah. So at the end, we're going to assign each other demons. That'll be the episode where we break up with each other. Basically, is <laughs> well, I have I have friends that I've known for years who assigned me something. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want to bias you against <laughs> it. But they thought it was hilarious, and I was highly insulted. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to move on. Okay. So. If any of you guys have listened to the Desire Made Real podcast that Caitlin and I did with our friend Mandy about A Discovery of Witches, the TV show, you know that... We like talking about the science. Yeah, we like talking about the science and we like talking... Uh, I like nitpicking about what parts of uh, like portrayals of academia feel real and accurate or, or just like totally throw me out of the world. Um, and so I don't think it like really is a good use of time to obsess over that angle in this world because it's like such an alternate dimension and and kind of out of time. Um, but I did want to just say that there was one thing that struck me as like really true. Um, and that was uh, Philip Pullman's description of the shoes of uh, the servant versus the master. And so like obviously, the master has the status and the power in that relationship. Um, but when he describes the shoes, like the servant has like very nice, shiny, well-kept shoes and the master's shoes are super shabby. And that is like, that is just such a spot on description of academia where it's like the people with the That's most so power are always the ones who are like dressed the weirdest and have like the weirdest habits and it's almost like, I mean, it's different depending on your subdiscipline, but for the most part, I think in a lot of places, it's like considered weird to dress up or to like spend a lot of time on your appearance because it's like, oh, well, if you're like caring about your clothes, you're obviously not paying enough attention to your work. Right. Interesting. Um, Pullman is uh, a Oxford academic, right? Am I wrong about that? Yeah, he went to Oxford. He taught he taught part time at Westminster College, which is one of the colleges at Oxford. But I I don't think he has um like advanced degrees besides the BA. Well, I guess we could talk about like what year do we think is this happening in? What is the time period of these books? So my first impression just from these first four chapters um is I was going to guess maybe like the 1920s. Uh, or like 30s approximately like because it's definitely well after 1898 but like at some point doesn't wine stop getting better and start getting worse no is that not a thing like, no you're eventually right. you're it's right. just vinegar yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and so i i kind of my impression is that i don't know like 20 30 years or whatever is the sweet spot i but I have no idea. Yeah, I don't drink expensive wine. I drink like Trader Joe's I wine. I feel like it depends on the wine and how it was made and how it was bottled. 
Yeah. I used to uh, work in a fine dining restaurant and we had very high end wines that were like, I definitely served wines that were like 90 years old Ooh. And, and were like hundreds of dollars. Okay. So, and people were like, this is amazing. So they were not drinking vinegar as far as I know. I didn't drink it. I think the most expensive wine I've ever had was 50 bucks. Oh. And it was really good. <laughs> I once drank a 200 euro bottle of wine, but... Uh, this French woman brought it and the cork like crumbled into the wine and then she cried a lot. Uh, I know. Oh, it shit, was really, it was, I've never seen someone literally cry about wine before or since really. I have drank, I have spent like $90 on champagne. That totally or, counts. Bubbles. Yeah. And that was also very, <clears throat> very good. And then so the other thing that gave me the clue for the the date was the gender politics just because right. the fact that there are no female scholars and yeah there are but just in their own colleges uh, yes i mean yeah so like very limited opportunities uh mm-hmm. for for like female scholarship and that it's completely segregated so i kind of and had it pegged as like early 20th century and lyra totally looks down on those women yeah and like i would be really upset with it if 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 it hadn't already been like made clear how she thinks that Jordan is the best, and it's not that she's necessarily thinking, man, women suck. Right. So much as she's just like, the other colleges are all inferior, especially those women's colleges. And it's very clear just things that she's picked up from the men around her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and like that there have been no, like next to no female influences in her life. Yeah. Um, and I guess you guys. Well, off air, you kind of let slip that you're spoiled that uh, to some other clues about what the actual time is. Um, well, I I remember thinking like the first time that I read this book, I don't actually remember what I thought, but I can. It's really confusing because they have like gas lamps and mm-hmm. or oil lamps, sorry, and well, the- that sort of thing, and then they have electricity, but they call it something else. Right. Yeah. So it took me a while. They call it Enbaric, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while to get that it was electricity. I think the reason so for that, yeah. um, I was looking some of this up. I think Amber is actually a really good conductor. Like a lot of the sort of subtle language stuff that Pullman is doing mm-hmm. is basically like going back to a point where like there were two possible routes words that could have been used to make a new term and then just like going the other way right so it yeah it actually comes from the the rock or the like uh hardened tree sap amber yeah he's definitely tapping on like a steampunk aesthetic you know whether you know what's going on or not and there are other hints dropped too about like the papacy got abolished (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. That's exactly what I was trying to remember, that Calvin was the pope yeah. and that that was the last pope. And so you're like, wait a minute, that's weird. Uh, yeah, and but that's all going to fly over like a young adult's head, you know, in terms of like YA fiction. Mm-hmm. But I think it's still building like this is like our world, but not like our world at the same time. Like mm-hmm. there's similarities and differences. I love how he just sort of drops that in like... They moved the papacy to Geneva, and then there was no more popes, and the magisterial court, or the magisterium, the magisterium took over and basically has complete control over 
the world. It's so good. And it's like a, a confused bureaucracy of people just competing for power. And yet they're not all speaking French. Because isn't Geneva the French part of Switzerland? I feel like they should all be speaking French. That's fine. Well, see, yeah. See, this gets into other things that I'll talk about. Because like you, you've already like mentioned, well, did the Spanish do this? And would the French do that? Yeah. But there's like before before Calvin and stuff, there's not really like countries aren't thinking of themselves as countries. They're like, it's Christendom. That's fair. I see. You know, it's like one thing. And then after that, it's when they start to be like nation states. France is like, we have to like, England sucks, right? Because that's how we measure ourselves. And England is like, France sucks because that's how we measure ourselves. And so like, that's where you get all the European colonialism from. But that's not the way that it was before that. It was just a bunch of competing kingdoms who all believed basically the same thing. And also, as an Englishman, I'm sure Philip Pullman could never have French be like a bigger language than English. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. Um, Yeah, it's just interesting world building. And I I remember being and with the gender politics and everything, it gives this really old fashioned feel to the world. Yeah. So you think it's early 90s or early 90s, early 1900s. Right. Yeah. And even just like the fashion itself that goes along with those gender politics, right? Like Lyra's always wearing mm-hmm. skirts and dresses and, and yeah, like, she's like this crazy wild child, but she's always in a dress. And like the fact that, um, you know, they have like maids to get them dressed. Like every, I don't know, academia, uh, like modern academia is somewhat regimented and like hierarchical, but not nearly to the extent that is depicted in this book, uh, which I think is yeah. like much more similar to how academia was in like the early 20th century. Yeah, like I think there's like two paragraphs spent on this is the land Jordan College owns and how it makes its money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it 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 feels very different from our world. You know, it seems like the like what we're kind of feeling is like the absence of corporations and like the role that corporations play in modern life. And also the absence of um, like they're in England and they talk about the magisterium a lot, but they don't ever talk about the king and or queen of England or the prime minister or there's something right. named after George at some point. I did notice that. Yeah, but they don't. It, didn't, it never comes up in when they're talking yeah. about politics. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like what I was saying about Calvin mm-hmm. and you know and all of that because it basically that if Calvin was the pope then that means that there was no reformation which which means that like there was no enlightenment and there was no rise of the nation state. Like it just radically changes European history to not have the reformation because then everybody in Europe thinks of themselves as one thing instead of thinking of themselves as either I'm a reformed Christian or I'm a Catholic, or I guess you could say Orthodox in there, but that's like Eastern Europe and, and, you know, is not like France and England and stuff. So it feels like we're getting into religion here, which is our (laughs) next topic of conversation. Well, and I guess maybe like to transition a bit from the science side into the religion side, it definitely feels like in this world, 
science and religion are basically the same thing. Like, there's no distinction between them. All of the, like, physical experiments that they're doing at Jordan College are under the label of experimental theology. Right. Because you have to be within the framework of the Bible or the theology that's built off of the Bible, whatever that may be in this case, which was absolutely the case when people were doing alchemy or when they were like trying to work with spirits and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And kind of a proto science, you know, that was going on in like the 1100s to 1600s or so. Um, I don't know how relevant this is or like if this makes any sense, but it just seems like you, you mentioned the Bible, but there's like at the same time that religion and science are the same thing, the way that religion is portrayed as like much less religious, I guess, than like the way that we experience it in our world. Like, I don't know. There's not a lot of emphasis on there's like, not a lot of people going to church and prayer and and no emphasis on like faith or belief or like the supernatural. See, like the like the Reformation didn't happen, is what you're saying. Weird. Is that. Oh, oh. Where people started to take the Bible literally and started to read it and say like, huh, the way that we're doing Catholicism has nothing to do with all this stuff that Paul says and Jesus says. It's like we built up all these rules for a thousand years while people couldn't read. And and like the people who made up the rules kept everybody ignorant of what the actual rules in the book were. And then once people got wise to it and they like translated it into their local languages, then people were like, what the (laughs) you made us do what? (laughs) Uh, And so like you get the rise of rationalism out of that. And then you also get like the wars that um, the Reformation causes, which make people realize that having a marriage between your uh, state and religion is asking for trouble because when your king converts or your duke or your earl or whatever converts uh to whatever like he was a catholic and then he converts to lutheranism then everybody in the county is expected to convert to lutheranism that minute and if you don't then you can get out of the county uh or you can be killed and so like what do you do like what do you do your family's been there for generations uh, you go to war and that like endless wars happen and people are like, this is no way to run anything. So they, you know, they pull apart religion and uh, government and that's you get then you get the rise of the nation state and nationalism and, and all of that stuff. So. So it really is like a super fundamental revisioning of our history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's if, very important. And apparently Calvin didn't give a shit about predestination. He was just like, whatever. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So that's uh, Calvin is, is a, like very yeah, famous like, for predestination. That's like the one thing that I know about Calvin. Sure. It's a, definitely the most important thing to know about Calvin is the idea that um, basically that like people are uh, the people who are going to heaven. God already knew they were going to heaven. Uh, and so they were predestined to go there, that those people did not make like a choice that manipulated God. Uh, instead, God knew what was going to happen, and those people are merely acting out kind of their fate, if you will. And that's actually a really important idea, the idea of like fate in these books and the idea that like uh, there is a God out there that 
um, knows what you are supposed to do and you should be doing it. Because we get that little aside, right, where we get this information that Lyra has a fate. There is yeah. something that she has to do. No, so you're right. There is like the thread of predestination kind of running throughout the book, right? Cause Absolutely. The, the idea that the alethiometer can function at all and that the master can like say all of this about Lyra and what's going to happen to her. Yeah. This is all very interesting to me because before I, I didn't know Kelvin was a real person. <laughs> I actually, I didn't. I did not pick up on the fact that Pope Calvin was that Calvin. Um, Geneva should have been a clue. But yeah, it's supposed to be. Yes. Yeah. If, um, if you but- asked me to name a pope right now, I could not do it. Like any pope that existed ever, including whoever is pope right now. No, not even JP2? Nope. Everybody I, loved JP2. I don't know what that is. John Paul I get that II. that's probably a pope, but I got nothing. Current pope? Francis? No, no. Sure. I got nothing. <laughs> there's like I do. me on one side of the planet and there's all of Catholicism on the other. I got nothing. This is why you asked Alan to be on the podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is my jam. That's what I do. I do think it's funny that Calvin ended the papacy in this universe. <laughs> like he's still, yeah. even though he's not a reformer, well, he's like enough. I got I got the idea that it was like the magisterium was like, yeah, we don't need a figurehead anymore. We're in charge. Fuck off. Yeah, that's probably true, especially since he seemed to have shaken things up so much by moving it to Geneva. It kind of makes sense, though, because it's like in the center of Europe, too. Right. So it keeps it like it's not just down there in Italy, like they're able to get their fingers in everywhere. Yeah. Um, and if you'd like to hear Alan and me rant about religion more, check out our Hallowed Ground Storycast episode about Crazy for God. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of other Christian stuff in here uh, just from the names like Jordan College uh, is like the River Jordan uh, in the Holy Land. Jericho gets mentioned. Gabriel, Michael, you know, those are archangels. Jericho is like the first city that the Israelites uh, defeat with the strength of God. They bring down the walls of Jericho. Um, so all of this stuff is like named after things in the Bible and it's supposed to be like subtly letting you know that like, you know, the Christian religion is very important, uh, in this setting. And like, I think it's interesting too, that like the river Jordan like represents death, but also like freedom. So that's kind of interesting that Lyra starts there. I see. See, that's really interesting. That's all the stuff that I think completely flew over my head when I was reading this book as a young teen because all of the like subtle verbal references to Christianity without any like explicit religious practice, I mm-hmm. don't think registered at all. Oh, I think it would totally works without knowing that stuff too, which mm-hmm. is perfect. That's how it should be. Well, there's this bit where the, um, Oh fuck. I forget his name. The dude in like the church. Oh God, that's not good. Where he like catches Lyra as she's running out of the from her, like, yeah, from her like yeah, yeah, demon yeah. coin switcheroo. Yeah, I forget exactly who it is. Father, somebody or other, and mm-hmm. he asks her if she says her prayers, and she says, right. "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> but she's I mean, lying yeah, clearly. Yeah, she. But like, he asks her a whole bunch of questions about whether or not she's lonely, and you know, and I get this impression that he's genuinely concerned about her well-being, you mm-hmm. know, and that he's a good guy, and I. But I just like that is. 
the only mention, I think, of prayers that we get in this whole series, maybe, you know, of like, do you actually do any of this religious stuff? And she's just like, yeah. And she runs off. And even there, it's not like a prayer to a personal God. She's not like, he's not asking like, do you talk to God like in a personal way? He's, he's saying like, do you recite the rote prayers that have been like handed down from antiquity to you? And she's like, totally. Yeah. I love that stuff. That's great. Can I go? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love Lyra so much. Yeah, she's perfect. That whole conversation with him is basically, no, 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 no. Do you say your prayers? Yep. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't know what to do with her. Yeah. None of those guys do. And you get um, Asriel, who does seem to know what to do with her, which is like, throw out juicy tidbits uh, to uh, get her interested in whatever he wants her to be interested in and do his bidding. And Asriel is actually uh, also a reference uh, you know, like Jordan and Jericho and all that stuff. You guys probably know this, and and uh, but Azriel is uh, the name of Gargamel's cat from the Smurfs, and Philip Pullman is a huge Smurfs fan. Uh, I so that's why. have not seen a single second of Smurfs. Well, if you watch it, you would know that Gargamel's pussy is the most dangerous <laughs> thing in the Smurfs. So that's I why don't he named Azriel that. To say to that. <laughs> No, that's not what Lord Asriel is named after. I'm sorry. That's not true. Uh, both, both the cat and Lord Asriel are named after the angel of death from uh, the Quran, actually. You know, I'd heard the, the term Asriel as the angel of death before, but I just hadn't put it together with Asriel from these Of books. course, from Smurfs, so, yeah. Right. <laughs> I was trying to think of when was the first time I heard Asriel, and it was definitely the Smurfs. Because I used to watch that every time I could catch it. I loved the Smurfs when I was a kid. I know the Smurf at principle is literally the only thing I know about the Smurfs. And it's a warning of what not to do. Which Smurfette is, was have, created have by one Gargamel. Fucking, have one fucking female character. Don't do but it. But there's not even a female. They're, they're fungus. They don't need a female. She's created by Gargamel to normalize oh, their... Fungi have like so many sexes. Like... Yeah. Let's not get let's not get into <laughs> Don't get this on is just started her on you. Let's not get on you under the fungi. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd like to hear more about me talking about fungi, there's so many other podcasts where I do only that. <laughs> Anyways, you've got a note here about shamanism and demons. Why don't we talk about that? Yeah, so um so demons, right? Uh, we've been talking about demons and how that works in this world, and it's definitely one of the most interesting world-building features, uh, I think, in the series, but also like in this uh, first four chapters. So, the word "demon" that uh, comes from Greek, it just means a spirit, and so that like totally works, right? Uh, these animals have some kind of mystical, spiritual connection. Uh, to their humans and to me that speaks of like shamanism where you will have like a shaman you know a shamanic uh, practitioner who has like some kind of uh, bond with an animal or is able to transform into animals Uh, and if you go into religious studies this is like religion 101 
is that every religion starts out as a shamanic religion that is related to animals. And then as it like increases in sophistication, then you start to introduce more uh, human uh, gods and stuff like that. But they never totally lose their animal connection. And so you'll get stuff like Zeus is associated with eagles uh, or like Odin is like associated with horses uh, and stuff like that. So like the idea there is that once upon a time, someone in Greece was actually worshiping eagles, but then it like evolved into uh, Zeus, if you if you can understand what I'm saying there. And so what I see Pullman doing here is tapping the idea of mystic shamanism and like this close connection that you have with an animal and just kind of making it totally mundane. Like this is the most normal thing in this world for everyone to have a talking animal that's with them constantly. Like nobody finds this remarkable. Um, and so he's taking this very elemental religious concept and making it the core building block of like your relationship in this world. But at the same time, you, so you have this irrational kind of uh, thing going on with shamanism and, and the mystical connection between the animals. But at the same time, I think you have uh, this connection with this guy called Carl Jung, who was like a psychologist in the early uh, 20th century. Who he was had originally this, a protege mm, of uh, what's his face? Freud. Yeah. That's right. He but was then they had Freud's like a big, student. big falling out, right? Well, they were they were okay at, at the end, but yeah, you're right. They they were definitely rivals after he was their student. Mm -hmm. um, and Young's whole thing was this idea of so you have like your ego, which is like your thinking mind, and then you have your unconscious, which I think everybody knows what your unconscious mind is. It's like ticking in the background, working on things uh, while you're not aware of them, and then you had the collective unconscious, right? Mm -hmm. That's way back there and kind of like cultural information that you're just not aware of, but still has an effect over your psyche. Now, all this stuff is kind of like debunked now, but authors love to use this stuff because it's like real crunchy. Uh, and I think Pullman is totally doing that here because Jung had this idea called the anima, uh, which right there you get the word that is the same base word for animal, mm -hmm. the anima, and that is the Latin word for spirit, just like demon. So animals are spirits, just like the demon. And the idea of the anima in Jung's uh, whole framework is that it is a kind of photographic negative of who you are as a person. So like uh, you're a woman, and so your anima would be male, and it would be like an opposite personality to you. So if you're very brave, it would be very cowardly. And you see this in the demons. Like this is their, this is the way that they work, right? Uh, Pantalaimon and Lyra. They are always the opposite gender and they are kind of having the other side of the conversation, like you said earlier. To uh, It's not always like out. that, but yeah. But that's Jung's idea of the anima. You yeah. would be like talking in your mind, like, what would, if I was going to go talk to that boy, what would he say? Um, you know, and, and like that. And you play it out in your mind that way. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a psychic reflection of yourself. And this is kind of like a very rational uh, way to like 
frame this relationship, but I think he's doing them simultaneously. So you have this very irrational tradition of mysticism and this very rational framework of psychology, and he's blending them together. Uh, and that is like the core concept of his world building. Like he does this constantly where he has like this irrational religious stuff and then he marries it with like rational scientific stuff. And the result is like this very unique world. That's uh, a lot. It's very interesting to poke mm-hmm. around in. I think, okay. So in that movie that everybody loves to hate on, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think there's a bit where Mrs. Coulter slaps her demon. And I've read so many reviews that are like, why would anyone ever do that? That doesn't make any sense. And in my head, I'm like, you must be really like good with yourself to not understand how you would do <laughs> right? that. You know, right? Like, there are so many times when I've been like, what the fuck, Caitlin? <laughs> like, where I wish there was this other part of me that I could just slap across the face and be like, make better choices. <laughs> So, no, I yeah, I agree. That's funny. I'm honestly uh, shocked that like everybody isn't better in that world, considering that they have their actual embodied conscious yelling at them all the time. Do you feel like it's their conscious, like a Jiminy Cricket, or? I, well, Pan seems to function that way a little bit to Lyra, but she also just doesn't listen to him. So, I, yeah, I think Pan functions that way because Lyra's a wild child liar person you know and also still a child so there's that mm-hmm. but I, I do wish we got a little bit more of the adults interacting with their demons because I think that's way more interesting because they have like we need to come up with a plan conversations with their demons you know yeah not what do we do what do we do what do we do <laughs> <laughs> well and that plays into like the other thing that I wanted to talk about really quick with the demons Uh, And we were talking about this earlier with the dogs and like your destiny and and all of this stuff being tied to your demon, because there's this idea uh, of teleology. I don't know if you guys uh, have ever heard about this before. It's a fundamental thing in like philosophy. It's like philosophy 101. You'd learn about teleology. So with young, you had these archetypes, which included animals. And so like you would have a dream and you would see like a snake or something like that. And then in the Jungian framework, it would be like that snake means X, Y, Z. It symbolizes this thing. And so that's kind of like what the uh, demons are doing in terms of your job, right? Like your opportunities seem to be tied to uh, your animal or at least in the you know, in the first chapter, we find out that all the servants are dogs, like doesn't seem to be any exceptions to that. And even the type of servant you are is tied to the type of dog. Like we find out the head servant is a really cool dog. And so if you got to say something, you, I was just just to play devil's advocate on this. I actually very much agree that it's all bullshit, <laughs> that there would definitely be oh, yeah. like some servants with non dog, but just to come at it from the other point of view i guess i can see where if you were raised your whole life to be a servant like that would shape your personality you know yeah, you in, see in, that in the little boy right when yeah. he is being obsequious his it, it turns into a dog his demon turns into a dog so if you were raised your whole life to be a servant you would just sort of think of course my demon's going to be a dog and that would then 
that would affect how, you know, how you turn out, which is kind of an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, if you were apprenticed to be a higher up servant, same thing. Yeah, or a noble. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like thing. you would get the the nobler dog, as it were. Hmm. No. Yeah. Totally right. And that is exactly like the way that Aristotle imagined the perfect society, uh, as like people being kind of in their place and doing what they're supposed to do. So teleology is this idea that it comes from the Greek word telos, which means like your reason or like, um, or like the end, like you've heard the ends justify the means telos is like the end or like, every, you know, people say everything happens for a reason. Telos is the reason everything happens for a telos. And so the idea here is like, imagine at the end of this podcast, you went to pick up your smartphone and when you picked it up, it said, I am a banana. You should eat me. Like your smartphone would no longer be a good smartphone. It would not teleologically be a good smartphone because it thinks it's a banana. Uh, it would not be able to communicate with other things. It would not be able to like post pictures, play video games, take, you know, organize stuff, whatever you use your smartphone for, because it thinks it's a banana. It's like, you should eat me. It's also not a good banana because it it's confused about what its teleological purpose is in the world. And so this would be like the same thing or if somebody has a dog for a demon and says like, I should be the master of the college. They'd be like, no, kiddo, you're a banana. You know, like you're, right. you're a dog. You need to fit your place. You have a purpose in this world. And this goes back to Calvin, right? And fate. And who is chosen for what purpose? Uh, everybody has a place to fill and you don't get a choice about it. It's just, uh, you know, your teleological purpose manifests itself in your demon. And that's why all the poor people are dumb or drunk. Yep. That's no, true. Totally. Sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's a dystopia, right? There's a lot of dystopian elements in these first four chapters, I think, where you feel like that there's a heavy oppression to things and there's a lot of like social violence going on. There's physical violence that's threatened on people or just outright committed on them. And so like there's a darkness to this book. Uh, yeah, that's right an interesting front. point, actually, about it being a dystopia, because I feel like like every other dystopian book I've ever read is told from the point of view of the people at the bottom. And Lyra is very much not at the bottom. Mm hmm. So mm. it, you almost don't see it as a dystopia, but now that you bring it up, I can see where like it absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. The magisterium is like the way that they're in charge of things is like I said, I, I see it as a very like orderly system where everything is very faded. Like I see a lot of, I think Pullman is, is purposely like using ideas from Calvin and like teleological principles, which were very important to the early Catholic church. Well, not the early Catholic Church, but the church after the Crusades um, and and kind of like telling everyone like you have a place to fill in the order of things and like your choice doesn't matter in that. And to modern people, you know, where our individuality and we have this idea of that we have rights that, you know, are intrinsic to being a human being, like all of this just hits us sideways and we're like, uh. This this is gross. This is not okay. Mm -hmm. Or hopefully it is. 
it's probably very familiar to children too, right? Who are in school or who might have bad parents. Like, this is easy to relate to, I think. I think you're totally right, Kate, about that not really feeling like a dystopian world because like the traditional way that dystopian stories are told is like a person going up against the system with mm-hmm. like some sort of awareness of that. Whereas this story feels much more just like an adventure story where Lyra is being driven by her own curiosity. So yeah. like the, t- the tone is different, even if like the kind of world building setting parts yeah, are Lyra, similar. Lyra doesn't start out to take down the system. If anything, the dystopia story is being told from Lord Asriel's point of view, but we, yeah. we don't get that. And he's mm-hmm. also very, very much not at the bottom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's weird to yeah, it's weird to compare it to dystopian fiction directly, I guess. But I just find the tone of the world building dystopian, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I like that you brought that up because it I just never thought about it before. But it's it you're right. I think that's all my religious crap. <laughs> uh did we have anything else we wanted to talk about before we moved on? I did uh I was reminded um of by the gobblers made me think of this situation that happened to Jewish kids in Russia right after Catherine the Great was uh, in charge of things. Her son was a huge anti-Semite. So is Catherine the Great, by the way. And they basically like made a bunch of laws that made it illegal to be Jewish in Russia. Of and course. yeah, because why wouldn't you? Uh, Anti-Semitism in Europe. So her son makes this law that says if you are a Jewish boy, and you are 12 years old, then you are drafted in the military. Uh, And you will serve a military service of 25 years minimum. Jesus. Yeah. So basically, we're going to kill you. Or we're going to deprogram your culture, uh, essentially. And it was like, if someone turned 12 years old, if a Jewish boy turned 12 years old and didn't show up, then the military police showed up at your house in the dead of night, kicked down the door and dragged the children out uh, of their homes and took them to military camp. So that's like a very real thing that this made me think of this idea of like poor people who can't really fight back uh, in this story, having their children taken from them and kind of the terror of that. Yeah, there's even a line at some point where, like, the police begrudgingly get involved after enough children have disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, what the fuck? Well, and if we're going to talk about children being taken away from their parents in 2019, like... Right. America, concentration camps. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. It's... it's I, I don't want to use the word strange, but it's the only word that's popping into my head. Strange how this book written in 1995 is so incredibly relevant yep. 25 years later. Yeah. Which I think we talked about a bit in our trailer episode. Um, how so Alan and I have our other podcast about American gods. And that's another book where like was published in the 90s and is super, super relevant today with all of its themes about immigration and and like hatred and stuff. Yeah, I think this book is gonna be similarly uh, relevant uh, in different ways. So Kate, I want to hear your take on Mrs. Coulter so far, because I know she's one of your favorite parts of this book. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. 
And I remember really liking her, but also I felt a little bit annoyed by her so far in in just these chapters because I kind of feel like she's like too good at what she does. Like, like does she have some kind of magical whammy that she's putting on people or is her personal charisma just <laughs> that strong? Like it it just seems a little bit like, you know, I mean, I don't want to glorify the concept of Mary Sue more than it deserves, which is not very much, but you know, like the, the like hot girl who walks down the street and everyone is like, Oh, you know, like (laughs) she just, it just seems like a little too otherworldly. I've always, okay. So we don't get all this in these chapters, but for me, Mrs. Coulter has always just been someone who doesn't have any stopping point. You know, like, she doesn't have a, oh, maybe I went too far here. Mm-hmm. So, without that, what what can't a person do? You know, right. like, what can't a person get for themselves? So, we see her in, the, in these chapters as being a female scholar, but not like the female scholars that Lyra, like, looks down on. Mm-hmm. You know, Mrs. Coulter seems worldly, and, like, she's actually gone out and done stuff, and Lyra's immediately transfixed by her. And a lot of the thing that has to do with how Lyra hasn't had, you know, female influences in her life. And then here's this woman who comes in who's appearing to have lots of money and influence and does the things that Lyra wants to do. You know, she talks about having gone north and bringing Lyra north with her and exploring and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I feel like I should clarify. I totally get why Lyra loves Mrs. Coulter and why Lyra specifically is enchanted with her. Mm Mm-hmm. What I don't understand as well is how all of the, like, random street urchins are just, like, totally trusting of her immediately off the bat. Right? Because Lyra has an official introduction. Right. And also Mrs. Coulter specifically appeals to her in these certain ways that she, like, doesn't to Tony and to all the other kids that she's stealing. Well, we kind of talked about her being the White Witch, you know, the... Yeah. some chocolate when you haven't had a good dinner in weeks or something. That's fair. I guess it is like uh, an archetype that's that's not just the Mary Sue archetype, right? It's like older and deeper, and more witchy than that. Yeah, and I was going to say with Mrs. Coulter, with learning that she's a scholar and also learning about some of the gender politics in the world, we can assume that she's had to work really hard to get to where she is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. So I, there's so many different parts of Mrs. Coulter that I can't even really discuss yet. But mm-hmm. we, we do see that she she will do anything for what she wants and she doesn't care. Like those, she just lied to those kids straight up and was like, absolutely, I'll give your parents these letters. I'm sure they'll miss you and I'm sure you'll miss them. And it's it's really sad, but you're going to be helping us so much. And we have, thank you so much. And then she just burns those letters and she just yeah. doesn't a give moment. a shit. But also that she's, like, she's totally willing to go through the motions of, and all of this labor of, like, writing the letters Mm -hmm. in order to make the kids easier to manipulate, right? Because, like, that's, she's not going to just use force, right? She's, she has to manipulate you into cooperating, yeah. Yeah. Once they were in the building, she could have just locked them up. But no, she gave them the hot chocolate. She let them write the letters. And then Mm -hmm. they loved her. Yeah. Right. Because, like, part of, yeah, part of her deal is that I think she needs to be loved and admired on some level while she's doing all of this heinous shit. Well, it just makes people easier to deal with. 
if they love you, right? If you can yeah. make that happen, it's just easier to do. I think she's also like playing off of gender stereotypes in her time. Like she's limited by her gender, but it's like, well, if this is all I got to work with, then I'll be like the most maternal, most beautiful, you know, most woman. That's how I see Miss Coulter. Like I see Lord mm-hmm. Asriel as most man and Mrs. Coulter as most woman. And then she uses, but that's not like intrinsic to her character. It's like her tool to get what she wants. I see. And maybe that just like that particular type of femininity is not something that exists in this world in enough quantity that it like it takes people off guard and by surprise and and makes them more easily manipulated. Yeah, at least not in the circles that she runs in. Yeah. Yeah, not with these poor kids who like, you know, but also not with like not with scholars and not with who we learn later is like fronting the money on the uh, the gobblers. My my favorite Mrs. Coulter line at some point, it says that like she she lowered her scented head and it like abstracts her in such a odd and chilling way that like it just kind of underlines that facade to her. Like her head is scented and like the way she's lowering it to the child to be like, oh, yes, dear, whatever you need. And it's like, wow, <laughs> you were like, you're very creepy. I I really like when she's talking to Lyra and. Lyra sort of offhand mentions Lord Asriel in the North. And then Mrs. Coulter is immediately like, oh, yeah, he was telling me about that. And like, she just immediately sees that this is the way to Lyra. Mm, yeah. And everybody else sort of looks at, at Mrs. Coulter and then everybody is just like, OK, I'm not touching that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's a fantastic character. Yeah. Both of these like female characters are so like three dimensional and crunchy in a way that a lot of the male characters are a little bit flatter, which is cool. Uh, yeah. At least in this first book. So since we talked about uh, the characterization of Mrs. Coulter, do we want to just take a, a couple minutes to talk about the characterization of Lord Asriel and his relationship with Lyra? Um, especially since you mentioned in the, the trailer episode that that was the one part that you were kind of most skeptical about uh, the casting of Lord Asriel. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in this, we see Asriel, you know, threaten to break Lyra's arm after mm-hmm. he finds her hiding in the um, the retiring room where she's not supposed to be. And he doesn't and come across as joking. No, he doesn't. No. And he's he's very, I don't even, he's very old man, almost. Like, I, I can't think of any other way to describe that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny, like, <laughs> I put this into our problematic section, mm-hmm. but it's actually something that I had to, like, it It was not problematic to me when I read it. It was something that I was thinking, like, what stuff is problematic? And then this came up in my mind, because to me, like, this powerful, manly man, like, of course he would threaten violence on a child, because, like, as a child, that was my entire experience. It was like... Oh, you you knocked over a glass of milk. Well, I should punch you in the face. Like that was the response that adults had with me personally. And so this kind of like trauma and violence that exists in Lyra's world, this like casual, I should just break your arm. I was like, yeah, of course, that's how men deal with children. That's normal. And so like for me, I appreciate this in the book from Pullman uh, putting it in there because I've feel like fantasy fiction is an escape for a lot of kids 
especially a lot of like traumatized kids. And so to see themselves and their relationship with adults, like very clearly laid out in a book, like this is not like Lord of the Rings, right? Like this, right. this is some real shit. And you can be like, oh, I'm, I'm like this little girl. I totally understand everything about her, like instantly. Well, it's, it's so weird though, because like this happens, but Lyra still wants it. Well, I guess that's not weird. Like as far as we know, Lyra doesn't really have much of a relationship with, with Lord Asriel. Mm-hmm. Like he comes mm-hmm. in every now and then, asks her some questions, gives her five golden dollars. <laughs> He's like Willy Wonka. I was, conf- <laughs> well, I was confused about the dollars, mm-hmm. but whatever. Moving on. Wait, wait, um, just the word dollars. Yeah, because they're in England, and then later on, somebody's talking about like shillings. I think which different, di- di- different money denominations. I don't, I don't. You know, there's like twenty five shillings and a dollar. No idea. Britain, Britain uses pounds. I don't. I was just really confused by that one. Okay, so we're just going to move on because there's no answers. Yeah. Well, um, no, I th- I think, again, that's just like one of those. Sorry. I think, again, that's just like one of those world building things, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like everything is just slightly different. Like maybe they could have decided to use the word dollar. I guess. I guess. <laughs> Anyways, but like they don't have much of a relationship. So when he, he threatens this like violence on her, she's just like, yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It normalizes it in a way that like, so that tells you a few things. It like tells you that this is normal behavior for Azrael. Mm-hmm. And it tells you that like Lyra doesn't think it's a big deal. So either adults regularly, you know, approach her with violence or like this is just their normal relationship. She doesn't yeah. find it remarkable at all. And, and so like, also, that's some really good writing. But also I think she approaches her relationships with other kids that like, similar levels of violence right like the power mm-hmm. imbalance isn't similar but they, when they talk about the her like warfare with the kids from the other colleges or versus the townies or versus the egyptians like you know that's her whole worldview is is through like people using their power to inflict violence on each other mm-hmm. yep but then she still greatly admires Azrael. yeah I mean, I loved my dad and looked up to him and wanted to be like him. You know what I mean? Like, I get that's that. normal. I, I, I suppose I get that being your dad, but I like they don't have that type of relationship. But I guess she doesn't have anything else. So, it's yeah. True. And he, you know, he comes by once or twice a year and brings her presents. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And he's like a big deal in the college. Like mm-hmm. everybody's like, ooh. Yeah. So that makes her kind of a big deal by association. But yeah, no, it's it's just like I really appreciated this from Pullman. Like, I think on the one hand, it does exactly what Anya is saying, where you should notice it in the story and be like, huh, there's a lot of violence in this world. Like it adds to that darkness. Or if you were a kid like me, you'd be like, oh, wow, this is a world that I understand. This isn't like Narnia, where it's like all like, oh, it's hospitality right up front from the fawns and nymphs. Like, I can't relate to that as a child. Like that doesn't make sense to me emotionally. Like people don't just give you stuff. They want something from you. Uh, in this world, like it makes way more sense that I'm going to break your arm or I'm going to give you chocolate and then I'm going to kidnap you. Like this world makes sense to who I was as a child versus like Narnia. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I also, after reading these chapters, I totally get what you were saying about the trailer 
Caitlin, that like here Lord Asriel is just so cold and he seems like very emotionless and just like personally driven. Mm-hmm. Um and like James McAvoy definitely has like a like a warmth and a humanity to his performance that is not really on the page here. Yeah, but also, like, he threatened to break Lyra's arm here just for her being in the wrong room, and in the trailer, she's, like, yelling at him in anger, and he's just, like, mm. it mm-hmm. like it just brushes off him. So yeah. that kind of rubbed me the wrong way with Asriel, but at the same time, I'm interested to see the journey that they take that Asriel on. Because yeah. he's just a, he seems like he's just a completely different dude. All right, so that wraps up this episode on chapters one to four. For our next episode, we will be talking about chapters five to nine. If you like our show, please take the time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And if you'd like to reach me, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. And I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. You can follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod, Measures of True Pod. Do you need more than 200 characters to speak your mind? Then send us an email uh, to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. We'll see you all next time, and remember to not get caught by the gobblers. <laughs> <laughs>